these lights. Okay, we'll go to chapter, chapter 6 of Isaiah this afternoon. And there's only 13 verses, so we're going to read the entire chapter. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sins purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Then he said, Go, and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord hath removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet it shall be a tent, and it shall return, and shall eat, and shall be eaten, and as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. And so this morning we took a glance into Isaiah 5 and detailed the judgment upon Israel and how that God had said that they'd, they'd uh, cast away his, his word. The Lord's anger was kindled against them. He stretched forth his hand against them. And so <clears throat> Isaiah was predicting the future judgment of Judah uh, by the Babylonian uh, nation 
that came and devastated the land of Israel. We tried to point out that the United States of America, though not a covenant people like Israel, and they're never meant to replace Israel, the New Testament church is not going to replace Israel. Nevertheless, it was founded upon some biblical principles, yet we've moved from those principles. And we ask the question, uh, what more could God have done? Uh, you can't look at the history that brought about the nation of the United States of America without seeing that God's hand was upon it. And we point out to you that God's judgment in this, not future, but this very hour is upon the United States of America, not like a judgment in Revelation or even a Sodom and Gomorrah type of judgment, but the fact that we've been abandoned as a nation. Again, let me remind you that God, he's promised his church that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Lo, I'm with you always. And so I'm not talking about his church and I'm not talking about we as individual Christians because he promises in, in Hebrews that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But I'm talking about as a nation. And as he listed those different perversions that's found in Romans chapter 1, we find him saying that he gave them up, and he gave them up, they gave them over. And uh, we see him saying that he gave them over to a reprobate mind. And we told you that that word reprobate means it's, it didn't stand the test, that it's worthless, it was unqualified. And we say it to you that these aren't just the people in the flop house, these aren't the people off of Skid Row or the red light district, but these are people that are in the, in the White House just off of Pennsylvania Avenue. They're found in the congressional halls of our states and our nations, and whether Republicans or Democrats or independents. And surely these people with a reprobate mind that we test them, uh, surely they fulfill the doctoral chairs of our universities. Remember, it's a fool that says in his heart there is no God. And it doesn't matter the DDs behind their name or what kind of credits they have. And often, even in America, uh, these people with reprobate minds uh, fill pulpits in, I can't call them churches, there's something, buildings where people gather. And I uh, made this statement that I don't see how that we can any longer see that my country tis of thee when God can't be associated with much that we do. I don't know how we can, with good conscience, bow our heads and pray, uh, God bless America. Uh, it seems always, uh, it's always a front to me when the president ends his little speech and say, may, and may God uh, bless America. He doesn't believe in God. And he doesn't even know what blessings they are about. So we can't really pray uh, God bless America any more than we could pray that God would bless a murderer to shoot straight or to, to ask God to bless our children who are acting in disobedience or 
Can we ask God to bless America when Vice President Kamala Harris is pushing for the right to abortion to be codified, which means to be made a law? Which means that states like Arkansas, who did all they could to ban it, uh, would be in violation of federal law. God cannot bless America or people who deny him and live their lives as though there was some kind of cosmic accident where primordial soup and, uh, and stuff got together, amino acids, and made life. God can't bless a people who have no fear of him. God cannot bless a people who trust more in economic policies and their military strength and at the same time denying and actually de uh, defying the sovereign God of the universe. How can God bless a people who kill 860,000 babies? A year. The United States of America has turned its back upon God, and as a result, sin abounds. There's political corruption, lying, slander, violent crime, theft, adultery, habitual sin, abusing drugs, drunkenness, economic woes, and we have become stinkberries in the eyes of God. Yet he's not forsaken us. Uh, Lo, I'm with you always, he says to his church. <clears throat> when we come to chapter 6, it's just followed this, this heart-piercing prophecy of chapter 5. No doubt Isaiah's heart is broken. No doubt tremendous emotions flood his soul. I want you to think about it again. 52 years a godly man was in power. Uzziah. It's, it's, it's unimaginable, isn't it? That a godly man could be leading your nation. And now, this man who brought prosperity, this man who brought stability, this man who brought peace to his nation, he, uh, he has died. He got proud in his end. He went into the temple God gave him leprosy. The throne is empty. The future looks dim. And no doubt, Isaiah is very uh, discouraged. Fast forward to uh, 2020 and 2021. America had a president that wanted to make America great again. Imagine that thought. America had a president who fought against abortion. America had a president who was not in it for the money, 
I don't know if you realize this or not, but he never took a salary in all the 48 months that he served as our president. America had a president, though not godly, he did have morals. Maybe we should shut the mic off here. But now we're ruled by a fool. I pray for him, but he's a fool. And it seems as though the party of fools is going to be in control uh, for years to come. They're already pushing to expand the, the uh, Supreme Court. They're pushing to make Washington, D.C. a state. And those are going to go Democratic, but uh, <laughs> could we not agree if we put Democrats and Republicans in the same bag with some soot from the stove that they'd all shake out looking the same? And now it appears that homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion will be promoted. We have in the White House and the halls of Congress, those who call evil good and good evil. And what are we to do? Is there a glimmer of hope any place? And, uh, and we've all, you know, after the fact here, but we have went through some great thoughts of hearts and turmoil of heart in the election and the hope that we had in maybe America being great again. And so Isaiah comes into the temple uh, lower than my saying of a snake belly in a wagon rut. How could you give such a prophecy about your nation and know that it's coming and not, uh, and not have some great emotions? And so what we want to note this afternoon is, uh, is uh, what he saw. Look at Acts, uh, Isaiah 6 and, and see the setting and, and see what he saw. What did, what did I, Isaiah see when he goes into the temple? And I think if we'll see this for ourselves and realize that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that it ought to give us hope. It ought to give us refocus and get us back to where we need to be. I point out to you verse 1 again of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. When Isaiah goes into the temple... The thing that he sees is God. We know that God, man can't look upon it, but it's surely the presence of God and the sense of God and some things that he's seen here, he knows that it's God. Uzziah is dead and gone. That great leader of 52 years is gone. Donald Trump is no longer president. And the rhino stampede the halls of Congress. But God is not dead. 
He's where he's always been. And he's setting up on his throne. Psalms 9, it says, Behold, the mountains were brought forth, or ever before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Let us look up. And let us see that God has not changed residency. That God is always where he's always been. Back in 1966, I know many of you weren't even twinkle in your parents' eyes back then. But back in 1966, Thomas Altizer, an associate professor of Bible and religion at Emory University, which was a Methodist Episcopal church in Georgia, he was featured on Time magazine promoting his teaching. Here's a professor at a, quote, Christian university, and he was promoting his teaching that God is dead. And some of you may have read about that. Well, back in November 28th, 2018, a little over two years ago, a very shocking thing happened to Thomas's life. On that day, November 28th, Altizer died. And the everlasting God was still on his throne. He wasn't dead. Listen, in less than 50 years, Biden and Kamala Harris will be gone. <laughs> and maybe just two years for Biden. They're going to be gone. There's not a leader of any nation of the world today that's, not, that's going to be here in 50 years. Uzziah was dead. But God still reigns. He still reigns. And we know that Isaiah got the message. He understood all this because, as I said this morning, when you get to chapter 40, the, the, it, it changes from words of judgment that we're in chapter 1 through 39. And, and when you get to chapter 40, Isaiah, in encouragement and comfort, he says this in Isaiah 40, 28. He's asked some very serious questions. He says, Has thou not known? Has thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, Neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. He doesn't grow weary, he hasn't fainted, he hasn't taken a nap. We may be mortal, and we are mortal, but he is immortal. And we can fade along the way, faint out, and, and be overcome along the way, but he never does. And we grow weary. We grow weary of all this politics. We grow weary of all this new legislation. We grow weary of seeing how God is, is mocked day by day. But God never grows weary. And so, number one, the first thing, we see that when he went into the temple, he saw the Lord. And no matter who's in the White House, God is still there. And so he saw the Lord. Secondly, 
he saw that God was sitting. He was in charge. He wasn't up around about, scurrying about, uh, but he's, he's sitting. You never find a vision of God in heaven plowing a field. You're not going to find him cutting grass. You're not going to find him behind the desk filling out reports. He's not going to be over on the loading dock, loading trucks. Heaven is not coming apart at its seams. Heaven is not just barely holding together. God's sitting. He's not having to apply for a second job to make ends meet. He's never at his wit's ends with his heavenly realm. He sits on the throne. He sits there in peace. He is absolutely in control. The throne describes his right to rule. We don't give God the authority over us. We don't make him Lord. We can acknowledge him as Lord, but he's exercising authority. And there's no crisis. There is no crisis that's beyond the scope of his lordship. And so he first saw the Lord. Then he saw the Lord. He was just sitting over there, just sitting there, not worried, not wringing his hands, not wiping his brow. But he is in control. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. It says there, I saw the Lord sit upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. When it talks about high and lifted up, it means that he's sovereign. There's, no, there's nothing above him. There's no authority over him. There's no throne beyond him. He is in control. Quite often, Donald Trump was out of control. President Biden is in over his head. Congress mocks God. Yet God sits in heaven and laughs. Why is he laughing? Because he's in control. That great Psalms 2, in verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves and make rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords. And the Bible says, He that sitteth in heaven shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. God's in control. When injustices are happening, when things are, when Christianity is being frontally attacked, not just on the side and peripheral, but face on face, it's being attacked. God's in control. He's sovereign. He knows what's happening. He's allowing certain things to happen. He's in control. In Isaiah 46, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times the things that are not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. 
Nobody's going to overthrow God. Nobody. And he's our God. Daniel said, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay, stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? What are you doing, God? He's doing exactly what he wants to do. And then he saw the ever-present God. It says here that his train filled the temple. And it talks about uh, uh, the house was filled with smoke there in verse 4. But he's an ever-present God. The house being filled with smoke. And when the train fell in the temple, we, we know that when Isaiah saw that, that the vision was much greater than what was taking place just in the temple. Because all of you know, he fills the whole world. And so when you read this, it really goes beyond just a, a little a, a, a sanctuary or a building or a temple that was there in the land of Judah. But he says that he filled it all up. I mean, his presence is there, that, that he's a very present God. And, and it says that, that, that it talks about there how the smoke uh, filled the temple. Now, there's something about smoke that's very interesting. You know it's there. You leave your stove open, you thought you had it set down, and, and, and you come back and your house is full of smoke. You can't ignore that. And God's presence is here. He, 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 uh, his train filled the temple. I'm simply saying that, that he can't be ignored. I mean, he's real. And we can know he's real. And, and, and we in this hour, instead of looking to politics and, and looking to see how we can flip the elections and looking for this and that, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to try to vote good people in and and, but, but listen, again, let me say to you that this is not our home, that, that God's presence is real, that I could, in the midst of the fire, the three Hebrew children knew that God was real. And we need to get back to, on our feet, uh, on our knees before God. We need to get back acquainted with who our God is. He is not an itty-bitty God. And the need of this nation is not better politics, but it's the need of knowing this great God, the only one that can deal with the issue of sin and judgment in your life. That's our job, guys. It's not, a, you know, yes, vote. Yes, pray for our leaders. But our job is to take the gospel to all the world. And this is not our home. And our allegiance must first and always be to our king. And so, God's in control. Sits in the heavens and laughs. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. His train filled the temple. Isaiah he knew that. I want you to flip over. This is, this is pretty powerful. In Isaiah chapter 41, 
I know that, again, we're not a covenant nation, but I also know that the Bible says that he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, that, that though I'm not a part of the Jewish nation, and, and when you come back and David sits on the throne, the Lord sits on the throne, that's a Jewish kingdom. But listen, spiritually, I'm a Jew. And spiritually, these blessings that are pronounced in the Bible apply to me. And look, I want you to note Isaiah chapter 41. Very powerful words that applied to Israel, but they apply to me too. Because I'm a child of God. And I'm a Jew inwardly. In Isaiah 41 and verse 10, look at these words. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. You that are saved, tell me, tell me this afternoon, tell me when God left you. He never left you. And because of that, I said, fear thou not. When I was a young guy, young little boy, and, and uh, I remember getting lost in, in Seaside, Oregon. Uh, I looked up, I thought this guy was my dad. I looked up to grab him, asked him if I could have some, some saltwater taffy, and it wasn't my dad. And man, whoo, there were some emotions going then. And then when I got to him, I grabbed onto him. But, but there was no fear in the presence of my great daddy. Well, fear thou not, I am with thee. Be not dismayed. Isn't it? Listen, it's a shame to us how much we've been dismayed in the last year. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. He's our God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with thy right hand and my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with them shall perish. Thou shalt seek them and shall not find them, even them that contended with thee. They shall war against thee, shall be as nothing, and as a thing of naught. For I am the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. What great words. And so he saw the Lord is not dead, no matter what Altezer said. He saw that God was sitting. He wasn't alarmed. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the ever-present God. But also he saw a God that it says, Holy, holy, holy. We find... There in Isaiah 6, that verse 3, the seraphims of verse 2 are around the throne, and they cried one to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Here we have these angelic beings covering their faces and crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And we need to move slowly here. We need to think with our minds and fill with our heart before we just jump up and move on. It's a time to stop and to think. I remember a preacher years ago in Texas during Bible school that would come and preach at chapel once in a while. His name was Hugh Atkinson. His son, Larry Atkinson, was up here many years ago for a mission conference and in fact, Larry Atkinson just died uh, this year. But Hugh Atkinson would, 
say a few words, like he would, he would you know, read how that God would say, uh, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, and then he would pause. And, and a lot of people, preachers take a pause so they get a breath of air, but he would pause, and it would be two to three seconds. And what it caused you to do was to think about what he said. I mean, it was kind of disturbing at first because you weren't used to that kind of preaching, but it caused you to think. And so when we come to this word, holy, 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 let us think a little bit. These holy creatures, the seraphims, cover their face because, uh, I mean, these are angels. These are holy creatures. But they cover their face because they're an entirely different category than God. And you find them employing the word three times because it wants us to capture the depth and the breadth and the height. It's like saying, like, like we're down on the beach and an earthquake comes and, and then we're describing it to people and we say, there was a big, big, big wave that came, referring to the tsunami, the biggest wave that I've ever seen. Well, holy, holy, holy is to take our minds and to stretch it. It's, he's holy, which should be enough. He's holy, holy. But no, he's holy, holy, holy. It's a... It's a Stretch it out. It's to, it's to cause us to, to imagine the depth to it and the height to it, the volume of it. It's, it's to realize that God's in an entirely different category when it comes to holiness. He's, he's more holy than any holy you've ever seen. He's so holy, these angelic beings can't look upon his face. He's so holy that his train filled the temple and it fills the whole universe. He's so holy that his, the temple shakes here. And what it's telling us this is telling us God. It's fundamentally, at the very fundamentals of thing, that God fundamentally is different than you and I. He is not an ordinary wave of holiness. He is a great tsunami. It's meant to give us an understanding that the God we're dealing with here is greater than anyone we've ever dealt with or will deal with. He's high and he's holy uh, because he's God. Now, what does that mean to Isaiah? And what does it mean, this word holy? Well, holy means separated. If something is holy, if if the Ark of the Covenant was holy, it means it was separated unto God. So it's separated from the ordinary. It, it means that. 
that it's separated, it's distinct uh, from anything else that ever existed. But secondly, it means that it's morally pure. Holiness is not only being separated, but it's being morally pure. Actually, actually it's kind of frustrating sometimes to, to study the attributes of God because, and particularly this one, holiness, because, because there's nothing like him that we can compare to. But what a glorious thing that that is, isn't it? That we, that, we, that we have a God that there's nothing like. I can explain, well, my car is like this or like that or, you know, or this thing I saw is like this, but, but it's uncomparable. There's nothing to compare it to. Uh, Exodus says, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, Samuel said, there is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside him. Neither is there any rock like our God. And so the holiness, when we talk about holiness, it's, it's, a, it's the very essence of who God is. It's not like it's a part of him, but it's his very nature, it's very efforts. How does God reveal his holiness? How do we reveal his holiness? How, how do we explain or point out to you God's holiness. How do we exhibit it in his person? Well, everything God does, everything God says, everything God experiences is holy. Everything about him is holy in all of his actions. He's holy in his justice, which means it's set aside and it's pure. Remember that Holiness means not only am I set aside, but it also has to do with my purity. He's, he's set aside. There's no justice like God's justice, and there's no pureness like God's justice. He's holy in his love. What, what he set, his love is set aside above all others, and he's pure in his love. He's holy in his mercy. He's holy in his power. He's holy in his wisdom and his patience. He's holy even in his anger. He's holy in his grace and faithfulness. And so why holiness matters? Well, it's the year King Uzziah died. Isaiah needs to hear these words of holiness. Why do I need to hear these words? Our nation morally is falling. It's falling through the outhouse hole. I don't know how better to describe it. But God's holy. He's sovereign. Evil is not in control. The holy God is. Injustice is not rule. Corruption is not king. Satan will not have the victory. God is, and God will, always be worthy of your trust. God is, and God will, always be worthy of your trust, because he's holy. 
holiness matters because it brings me uh, face to face with my uh, falling short. When Isaiah saw it, he said in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone. As God is holy, 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 I am short, short, short. And really this holiness, as it fills the whole earth here, you know, when it, when it says in Romans that for all is sin and comes short of what? The glory of God. And His holiness is His glory. And, and as we, we understand God's holy, holy, holiness, we understand our short, short, shortness. And it's in that case that God begins to use us. Holiness matters because it confronts me with my need. The need of my family. The need of our neighbors. The need of our nation. The need of our world. Though Jotham, Uzziah's son, was a good king, only ran in 16 years, Ahaz comes along and he's a terrible king. And there was no hope in the next king. But there was hope in the God who is holy, holy, holy. Listen, I've already said this, but winning the Senate and flipping the House and the re-election of Donald Trump is not the answer for our nation. It's not the answer for my family or your family. It's not the answer for our neighbors. It's not the answer for the world. Because the problem is much deeper than Republicans and Democrats. They've fallen short of the glory of God. And of course the gospel is the answer. The gospel absolutely is the answer. But now, what did, what did Isaiah hear? What did he hear? We see what he saw, but what did he hear? In verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? He heard the question, whom shall I send? And we have that answered for us in the New Testament. Very clearly answered. In Matthew chapter 28, the Lord speaking to the New Testament church said that all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, teaching all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And so God has ascending place. God has someone to go to the world. God has never, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God has never lacked a people that he's not commanded to go. Who shall I send? Go. That we have our orders. That, listen, no matter what happens in politics in America, no matter if we even go and become a communist nation, we have our orders. We have a job description. Who shall I send? Who shall I send? The New Testament church. But there's another question. In 
and who will go for us. You're the only ones here today, so you're going to get preached to. Who will go for us? Not only surrender to the ministry, but telling the gospel, but particularly surrender to the ministry. You know what America needs today? It needs preachers. Who will go for us? I've sat there, just like you sat there. <laughs> Who's going to go? Someone said we must go and send a substitute as well. I'm, I don't believe in mama called, papa sent preachers. But I do believe in this. I believe in getting on my face before the Lord and say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do. And all this I'm trying to gain around myself and this living I'm trying to make and trying to provide for my family, which is all biblical. I'm going to, I'm going to take second place to that and put you first place. Who will go? Who will we send? He's going to send a New Testament church and you are members of this New Testament church. Who's going to go? Are you willing to go? That's where we got to start first. Who will go? It's laid at your heart's door, not mine. The only one way to get that monkey off your back, I fought it for years. I told God that he could, he could kill me, but I wasn't preaching. And he knew how to get my attention before he killed me. Who's going to go? Back in 19, or 1790, a Baptist missionary, William Carey, sailed from England to India to answer God's call on who will go. He was accompanied by his wife and his eight-year-old son, Felix, and Felix learned the Bengali language quicker than his father. He was later saved and became a missionary. But at one point in his life, there was a shipwreck, and Felix lost his wife and all his children And he quit the ministry. And he became a political ambassador to the king of Burma. And I don't know if I could have survived what William Carey's son Felix experienced. But William Carey said of Felix, he has shriveled himself from being a missionary to becoming an ambassador. 
Why would we want to shrivel ourselves to a secondary thing if God is saying, I want you to go? Now, to Felix's credit, he later joined back up with his father and was used of God to translate numerous languages into the uh, Bible, the Bible into numerous languages. But why is it, why is it that we don't consider first for our boys the ministry? And again, let me say to you that when it says, pray the Lord of the harvest, that he might send forth laborers in the harvest, some of that harvest is right here, right within our church, being a witness going out to Mountain Village and going out to Antioch as Brother, Brother uh, Wilson was able to do and we'd all like to go with him. But it's the heart of the matter. Let me tell you what made America great. It had a people that believed that God was God. And whether we're great again or not, there are souls that need to be saved. And as he saw the Lord high and lifted up, his train fell in the temple, the presence of God, knowing the reality of God, knowing that judgment was coming upon his nation, instead of, instead of that discouraging him, instead of that getting Isaiah to quit and getting that Isaiah to go sit on the sideline and and suck his thumb and, and moan and groan and whine. No, it pushed him on to give let words of comfort to his people from Isaiah chapter 40 verse on. And, and then he comes to that great chapter, the, I think the greatest chapter in all the Bible in Isaiah chapter 53. Who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? I'm going to teach on that one of these days in Sunday school. I'm working on it as fast as I can. But every verse is a verse where I want to take off my shoes and kneel on the floor and acknowledge that I'm on holy ground. Now, I want you to note the commission. He told me, I want you to go. And I want you to go to a people who won't hear. I mean, he's already, he's already faced Uzziah's death. He's already given the prophecy of judgment. And he says, go and tell this people. And he said, make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy. And they won't hear. And he said, Lord, how long? How long do I have to preach and no souls be converted? How long do I have to warn and nobody listens to me? How long? And, and he says, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man, the land will be utterly desolate. How long? 
till the end. And then he says in verse 13, he gives us this hope that one out of ten may be saved. One out of ten may be saved. I grew up in a real small town. Baptist preacher was there, the Baptist church we went to. I had a graduating class, a big graduating class of 20 people, and that, and that was big. They said down to like one or two today because the sawmill moved. But I was one out of 20. I was the only one out of 20 in that graduating class that knew the Lord. But I would say to the preacher that came and pastor when I was preaching, if there had to have been $10 million raised and transported across 100 mountain ranges for you to come to this place, and preach the gospel, and for me to be saved, then somebody please pay the cost, because it salvaged my life forever. People need the Lord. We want to pray, as Timothy tells us, Pray for our leaders that we could live in quietness and peace. But our hope is not in our leaders. And there's people that will hear and people that need the Lord. And let us rally around again and understand what our job is. And surrender if we need to surrender. To get off our behinds and and go share the gospel and praying that God would give us boldness. But we need to focus. Our job is to take the gospel into all the world and preach it. And souls will be saved. It's been a dry spell. And you know what that means? Keep putting one foot in front of another and keep going and know that we have a command. Things look bleak when we look from side to side. But Isaiah went into the temple and he looked up and he saw that God was still alive. And he was over there sitting down. He wasn't wringing his hands. His throne was above all else, and he's still holy. Listen, guys. Uh, we're blessed. We're privileged people. We're more than conquerors through him. Paul put it like this. To live 
is Christ. Day by day, living for him, for his glory. But to die is gain. I go up there, I knock on the door. They come open the door. I say, I'm from Black Road Baptist Church. I'd like to explain the gospel to you. Do you know what the gospel is? And, and uh, they give me an ear. Or they say, I'm not interested today. Well, to live is Christ. I go up to the door, and I'm having a good day. I tell him I'm from Black Road Baptist Church. He says, I know where that is. And poof, he shoots me right in the head. To die is gain. <laughs> we can't lose. And so let's, um, let's rearrange our thinking. Yeah, we can weep over our nation. But if it reminds us that this is not our home, this is not our nation, this is not our kingdom, this is not our Lord. And we have a job to do. And so all this was about taking it down low as I could and seeing reality, but bringing it back to reality that it's all about God. And let him lift you up as high as he can. And so let's go into all the world and let's preach the gospel to every creature. And let's begin our days the best we can, saying, Lord, what would you have me to do today? Lord, bring me some divine appointments. And Lord, give me boldness. Give me boldness. Give me boldness. And he will. I've experienced that just recently as I've been teaching. I taught on that boldness. All right? I see most of you stayed awake. I mean, this is where we're going to live the rest of our lives. We're going to live, you know. I, I'm turning 71 tomorrow. And uh, I don't know how many more years I'm going to live. But listen, I know this, that I'm not going to relive last year. The promises God are greater ever. And my future is tomorrow. And tomorrow. And tomorrow. And I'm not going to live in the disappointments of elections and the disappointments of God's people. I started the old stuff again today when certain people aren't here for one reason or another. Then I get all discouraged. Man, this is going to be a good message for them. No, you what? It was a good message for you because you were here. And you had the opportunity this morning to worship God because you were here. All right. You're dismissed. Love you.